Okay, yeah. guys, we're live. Welcome to an episode of Coffee Bong. So today we are here with Aaron and Kenny. So Aaron, can you tell us more about yourself? Um, basically, I am a Bitcoin guy. Okay. <laughs> I work in the Bitcoin um, crypto OTC desk. So what we do is we basically facilitate, you know, large buy and sell orders um, for cryptocurrencies. So a little bit about how I met Aaron. So we basically met at SMU where he came to SMU to talk about the Bitcoin bull thesis and I was really impressed with how he articulated everything. So today uh, the topic will be more about the Bitcoin bull thesis and how it jumps into the current macro events we see today. Uh, so for the start, can we just know about how do you get into Bitcoin or like what got you started in Bitcoin and why, yeah, how do you get into Bitcoin? Uh, I think if we, you know, I think most of us in the space, you know, we, we all knew a little bit about Bitcoin, you know, back in the days of, you know, uh, Mount Gox, Silk Road, you know, it was always in the press, right? Yep. But I think we, a lot of us didn't really pay much attention until maybe um, the later part of, you know, those years in 2016, 2017, when, you know, the media started to cover it a lot more. Um, and especially from my vantage point, because I was in a venture capital fund back then. So in venture capital, we saw a lot of blockchain deals and there was an increasing, yeah, increasing number of them. And because of that, uh, so I paid more attention, uh, you know, what, what is this blockchain thing, you know, what's, 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 what's going on, right? Because as, um, as a VC, you really want to pay attention to what's out there, you know, what's at the age of innovation. Uh, and then I realized that, hey, Bitcoin is interesting. And, you know, to be perfectly honest, I think when you first get got into Bitcoin in, in a more bigger way, it was more to make money, right? You want to Correct, make, more, make more money. You wanted you want to you know go go to the moon, right? Two x, five x, hundred x. But then you know when I dug a lot deeper into what Bitcoin really meant, and you know, and it was quite deep, right? Because you go into the whole rabbit hole, five you know five six months a year, and you realize that actually, not only is this thing here to stay, the implications of you know if Bitcoin succeeded, um, could actually you know transform what we you know know about money. Um, and, and social attacks could be could be quite massive. Like. So, you know, from then on, I did several things, you know, advised a few ICO projects, you know, regrettably. Um, you know, did a few of those. Um, and, you know, more recently I joined this OTC test because um, not many people in this space are doing what I think is legitimate. And I think this space will be cleaned up over time um, with regulators coming in. So, you know, I think it's been an interesting journey for me. Okay, let's talk more about the rabbit hole you mentioned mm. because uh, we all know the story of Bitcoin started you know, after the GFC great financial crisis and then I feel like when people ask me what is Bitcoin, what does it do, what is it to do, it, it's like a very complicated subject. Mm. Something like a renaissance man kind of thing, you know, because you have law, economics, game theory, computer science, everything that jumps together and it's not perfectly like I feel like I have trouble explaining to the guy on the street like mm. what is it about so can we just go right from the start like why was Bitcoin started or why did like Satoshi study mm, yeah, mm, mm. from there I think the, the the history of Bitcoin obviously goes way before Bitcoin right you had mm. the early days in the 1990s when the cryptographers were working on all these okay. cryptographic techniques um, and, and I think it just so happened that you know Bitcoin was launched at a time where the world needed something like it Right. I think if you look at the world today and <clears throat> um, with the whole, uh, whole global financial crisis in 2009, uh, when I was still a student at SMU, um, there has never been such a time, such a unique time in, in human history where fiat currency has become so, um, so dominant, right? Okay. If you look into history, it's always been a constant battle between um, you know, sovereign stores of value such as gold, mm -hmm. such as silver, um, but you know, you always have governments issuing their own form of currency, right? Whether it's um, you know Tang Tang Cao in China or one of these ancient um, you know governments like 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 the Romans when they issued their silver coins. So it's always been a constant battle between these two. But I I think we're living in a very unique time in the sense that um, gold has become has probably you know has been diminished as a store value in the last um, I would say ever since Richard Nixon depacked us from. Uh, Gold in in um, a couple of that um in nineteen seventy one so I think we are living in very unique times and I think GFC and you know all the you know all the repercussions in the last ten years in terms of QE in terms of you know asset you know all the uh, asset prices going up dramatically has been a direct result of what you know we perceive as money printing um, and the expansion of the monetary supply which is which means that. Um, central banks and governments are able to print more money, right? And then 
you, you realize that you know from 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 that point of view that more and more people are they are aware right they are aware of the effects of inflation. They may not be you know even the men on the street, they may not fully understand inflation. They may not fully understand economics. But from a day to day basis, we are not talking about Venezuela. We are not talking about like you know these these crazy countries, right? We're talking about more even in DM countries like US, Singapore. We you know we very acutely feel the effects of inflation. You know, 10, 20 years ago, we will say that you know. The chicken rice would cost two two bucks, right? Now it's cost like you know four bucks. So I think even the men on the street acutely feels the effects of inflation, and because of that, you know, housing then became a store of value. Housing became a store of value because intuitively, even if you don't understand inflation, you would know that real estate is something that you use to hedge in inflation. I think most people get that, and because of that link, it has caused a Bubble, right? I would say real estate trades far above its intrinsic value. In intrinsic value meaning meaning its ability for people to go and stay in it, right? It has become a store of wealth, store of value for a lot of the high networks, but also for the middle class. And because of that, um, it has also led to a lot of social problems, right? You have you have in, you have wealth inequality because the rich will always own more assets than the poor. And so where 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 was we talking about it? The like the the start of Bitcoin. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. response to the great financial crisis. So I think Bitcoin actually comes at a very opportune time because it sort of represents the people's money, right? The, the 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 concept here is that you know um, money that's issued by the government is controlled by the government, right? Whether it's you know a bunch of old guys in in a room somewhere de- determining oh. They say I want to print this much money. Like the like rates, interest uh, rates, you know, yeah, basically okay. they determine everything. Yeah. And us as consumers, us as the citizens of that population, we don't really have a choice. We don't have a say in all these monetary policies, right? So what we do is we would feel the effects of it. And we would then have to act in order to prevent the the, the decline in our purchasing power. Yeah. So yeah. I feel like what Aaron said is true. You know, we have seen like QE, the printing money, monetary policy, low interest rate, uh, more of like the helping of banks, building banks out, things like that. And 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 from what I know, from what I've read, is uh, Bitcoin is more like a you know a response to all those anger that was caused by all these policies that was seen to be only helping the rich, but not the poor. So in, in some sense, that you know, um, no one's gonna pay out the guy who lost his hair alone. But someone's got bailed out like Citibank and all that. So that's where Bitcoin come in. But my question is like, how does it help? Or what aspects of Bitcoin does it help in mm. elevating this problem? Or yep. I think there's a, there's, there's a very technical term called the Cantillon effect in, um, you know, in Austrian economics. The Cantillon effect basically means that the people who are closest to the money printers, right? Yep. Benefit the most. Meaning who? The people... The large corporates, right? So even among the corporates, you have large corporates and small corporates. Large corporates will be able to borrow at a cheaper rate than small corporates, right? SMEs. I'm talking about SMEs. SMEs, you know, financing has has always been more expensive than large corporates. Um, rich people can borrow more cheaply than than someone who's poor, right? Someone who's middle class. Like for example, a billionaire could easily pledge, you know, X amount of assets, you know, real estate, and get a really really cheap loan, whereas someone in the middle class would. You know, face the typical restrictions. Um, you know, having high higher interest rates, um, and you know, the, 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 these are all things that um contribute to the widening if, if effect. Because if you if, if you consider that, you know, two exact companies with two exact you know um you know if they are exact replicas of each other, uh, one has a lower financing cost than the other. This is an unfair natural advantage, right? You would naturally expect that the one with the cheaper debt will do better over time because they can borrow for cheaper. So this is known as pendulum effect. So why 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 Bitcoin makes sense is because in a Bitcoin monetary system, the the rules of the game is not written by a central authority, right? There's no there's no money printing per se. There's no bunch of you know ten guys, ten old guys in this room deciding what should be inflation next year. So in a way, everyone's on a level playing field. So you no longer have the case where oh if this company is is small is, is bigger than the other one. Uh, therefore, they have some special relationship, or, or this guy is like a private bank client. You know, you, you no longer have that, right? Um, it's a lot more fairer, also because the poor tend to have very poor, very low access to investment opportunities, right? Whereas the rich, they have you know the the world's their oyster, right? A poor person in let's say living in 
Indonesia, they can't even get access to US dollars. Some of them may not even have, uh, may not even be allowed to open a bank account. Or even if they do, what can they do? Buy Indonesian stocks? I mean, that's, that's about it, right? So access to opportunities, that also makes a big dif difference. But if everyone was, on a, was using the same global currency, and everything was on a decentralized network, they would, you know, be, they would have more opportunities. So that it, it would never be completely equal, but it sort of, sort of levels the playing field, uh, because now you no longer you no longer have the system where, um, you know, the uh, people who are privileged would you know tend to benefit more from these money printing policies and being closer to these, um, the where the money comes from. So from what I see, uh, we have two um, camps here. One is that you know. Um, for fiat currency, you can print, you can debase, you can uh, lower interest rate, increase interest rate. Uh, for Bitcoin, it's more of a fair playing, uh, playing field because the rules are set, it's set by computer, yeah. code is law. Um, and if more people do use it, it will be like a more like stable platform, I would say. Mm. And okay, so for Bitcoin, do you see it as a more of an inflation hedge or a store of value or investment opportunity? Like how does it come into play for uh, investors or, mm. you know? Because I mean, in, in Venezuela and Argentina, we do see that okay, maybe in places with hyperinflation, you really do need something that you can have used as a store of value. I mean, some people prefer USD, but it might be hard to get USD. You can't get US bank account. Mm. Uh, a Bitcoin wallet can create in mere seconds. You know, uh, yeah, mere seconds. Um, uh, yeah. So what do you see? I think Bitcoin is um, different things to everyone. Okay. <clears throat> For someone in Venezuela. Bitcoin could be a store value. It could be a inflation resistant asset, right? It could also be a means of payment, right? Okay. But maybe to someone in Singapore, it would be, oh, it is a store value, a speculative store value. So it's, it access different things to different people based on their own personal circumstances and also their own worldview. But what's interesting is that Bitcoin doesn't force any of these, you know, um, definitions on someone, right? Okay. It has many of these, these, these uh, different attributes, but to everyone, there is some form of utility, even if it's someone who's extremely well served already by the traditional financial markets. So someone who's extremely privileged, who lives in the US, who lives in Singapore, they have access to all of these. And which is why you usually see the biggest critics of Bitcoin coming from people like that. Because to them, Bitcoin is not as useful. To someone in Venezuela or in China where they intuitively understand some of these properties, let's say confiscation resistance. Because they know the government will fuck them up. You know. They they also understand the inflation resistant part, which is not a, such a big deal for people in DM countries, right? So I think it's different for different people, um, which makes it unique. Well, you talk about inflation resistant, mm. but if we see prices going up like ten percent and now ten percent, like which part of that is inflation resistant? I think it's I I think people confuse volatility with um, store value. Okay. So it, it for example. The US dollar. The US dollar is not volatile, right? It's pretty much stable. It depreciates, but it's pretty much stable on a year-to-year -year basis. But yet, it's still not a good store of value, right? It still goes down over time. So it's a, it's a pretty bad store of value, but um, it's not volatile. So people confuse volatility with store of value. Yeah. And so what would you say like, to a millennial? Like, okay, how would you convince someone that you should add Bitcoin to your asset <coughs> uh, in your investment portfolio? Because, like, I mean, if you ask um, the average person on the street, you think like, it's too risky, it's too volatile, it mm. goes up and down. Like, how do you even evaluate the value? You know, it's like a commodity, but who is using it? Where's the demand coming from? Yeah. I think the... I think the volatility is not an issue because the volatility part of the asset, it, it is a natural emergent property because it is a very new asset, right. right? If the end goal of Bitcoin were to become a global store of value, it can't get there in one day, right? It's not going to come to the market and suddenly become this stable. It will go through a price discovery process. So that, that, that part obviously can't be avoided like, because what you're betting on is the market is continuously repricing what is the probability of it becoming a store of value. So it will be volatile as news comes in, as people try to manipulate it over time as well. So that part is unavoidable. But what you, what any individual investor can do is actually to right size it in their portfolio. Whether it's 0.5%, whether it's 1%, if the guy is, you know, um, you know, you know a, a degenerate gambler, he can go in like 99% kind of thing. So it's, it's based on the personal 
the personal tolerance of the person, not so much the asset. The asset, it is what it is. Uh, you can't really do anything about the volatility per se of Bitcoin. The only thing you can do is right size it in your portfolio. Um, you know, a hundred percent annualized volatility in Bitcoin translates to a very small annualized volatility of a portfolio if you right size it. You know, um, accordingly. I think there's also the thing about that is doesn't correlate with many of the other traditional assets like yeah. maybe gold but it doesn't cost so it counts as like a thing to lower your uh, volatility in your portfolio yes in fact um, if you add Bitcoin to a traditional portfolio it actually increases your risk adjusted return because it is a diversifier to traditional assets because, uh, and uh, so like um, where can people like get this okay like if how would you convince people to like let me ask the question uh, let me think like how would you convince people to have yeah how would you okay but okay so you mentioned uh, uh, a few times that like bitcoin becomes a global store value like, mm-hmm. like what do you mean by a global store value like does it become like gold does it become like usd like a global store value like there's only 21 million mm-hmm. bitcoin in circulation so like what is a global store of value? So is it mm. like something that keeps the USD in check, such that they don't print so much, if they print too much, it, it becomes worthless, so the value of Bitcoin rises is like gold, or is it kind of store of value in some other sense, like it's like a proxy for electricity usage, mm. or mm. money usage, mm. or things like that. Because at the end we still have to know that um, you generate Bitcoin, you need electricity, mm. uh, all that. So what do you really mean by a global store of value? I think global store of value is, okay, num- number one, the word global there suggests that this is an asset that is not tied to any single country or organization, right? Correct. Just like gold is, right? Correct. So that highly, that, you know, that, 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 that highly fungible nature of Bitcoin is, is interesting because just like gold, if you bring it to you know, India, you bring it to the US, Canada, someone will give you goods and services or cash, right? For that same amount of Bitcoin. It, it, it's, it, it's global nature really means that um, its market is the entire market. It's, it's not bound to any government. And you know, the thing about keeping governments in check, I, I think it's interesting, but you, you, you will, I think it, governments will probably not be able to resist, continue to resist the temptation of printing money. Yeah, definitely. So if you look at, um, just mathematically, right, you have an asset that is, finite right 21 million and that's it and on the other side you really have not yeah the other side of the balance sheet or whatever you want to call it you have fiat money that's continuously increasing right correct that's increasing at you know x percent per year five six percent every single year and even if the u.s doesn't print you can be pretty sure that someone else in the world will be printing whether that's um the the, the british pound whether that's japanese yen because in in, in the fx markets to maintain competitiveness, countries really have to depreciate their currency against their trading partners, right? So there's this continuous devaluation um, that's happening in the different markets, and this will never stop, right? This will, ne- this will never stop because countries will always try to find a way to devalue against their competitors, right? So it's a never-ending game, and sometimes it slows down, some, some, sometimes it goes a little faster, but yeah, it's always trending in one direction. Fiat continuously loses its value um, on a global basis. So when you sort of put those two and two together, it's, it's very hard to imagine a scenario where, just based on this alone, so if we you know, ignore other risk factors like, oh, um, if Bitcoin's code was flawed, if there was a, you know, some, some massive, some other thing that would trigger a price fall, just based on these sub- supply and demand alone, you would naturally expect that Bitcoin's price will rise over time because you have more money versus less Bitcoin, right? Yeah, but would you say that like saying Bitcoin is the answer is too simplistic uh, an explanation? Because I mean, what you say is true. We have like pretty crazy things happening, like negative yielding bonds, uh, ECB just buying bonds and um, printing money, monetary policy. But is Bitcoin really that? Like, I mean, to me, it sounds too simplistic. Like, are there might might be like uh, other form of hedges like property, uh, gold, silver, uh, stocks, even maybe stocks. You know rather than Bitcoin. So why Bitcoin or why is Bitcoin like one of the better answers out of all these alternatives that I just mentioned? I think Bitcoin is one of many. Uh, it's not the only answer, which is why you see S&P trading at all-time highs, yeah, true. which is why you see gold just breaking out of a six-year base, 
which is why you see real estate at all-time highs as well. So, I mean, even if you strip out Bitcoin, if Bitcoin wasn't even in, in, invented, you have seen the same phenomena happen in any store of value markets. Anything that can, anything that can act as a store of value will become a store of value, including bonds, including real estate, cash. So, everything that is not money, um, and anything that can act as an SOV will become an SOV because of the sheer effects of money printing. So Bitcoin is just one of many, but it will become the, the best performing one simply because it has characteristics that very, very few other assets have. So for example, stocks and shares, yes. It's different in the sense that stocks and shares are, they have intrinsic value. They have intrinsic value that's from the cash flows. But there also comes a point of time where it becomes too expensive, right? Mm. Um, it's too expensive relative to how much cash flow it can throw out. So that's on the intrinsic um, things that have intrinsic value. But now you have things. I mean, all along you always have things that have monetary value. So these are things that don't have any, don't have much intrinsic value, or they have zero intrinsic value, such as artwork. Um, artwork has basically near zero intrinsic value because they're just basically a paper and some ink, right? But yet they trade far above their intrinsic value. The reason is because it has developed monetary value. It has developed monetary value not because the painting is nice, uh, some of them are pretty nice, but most of it is because of how limited it is, right? There's only one of such painting, right? And things that are scarce tend to naturally develop a uh, monetary value over time. So real estate has both monetary value and intrinsic value because intrinsic value it throws out cash as rental income, but it also has uh, monetary value because it can also be used as a store value because of its very low inflation in supply. So real estate has developed both aspects in the recent years. Stocks are mostly intrinsic value, but because of that, the valuation has, you know, P ratios and all have been going up over time. Mm. Um, so you, you are basically, you know, as, as a, as, as, you know, as society and civilization, you know, we continue to make money, we have to continuously make the decision where to store money, right? Because if you keep it as cash on your bank balances, it will continuously decline in um, purchasing power. Mm. And as negative interest rates continue to you know, ripple around the globe, this will actually force more cash out of the banks, right? Because the, the, the whole idea about negative interest rates by the central banks have always been so that you would go out and spend it. Sure. Humans will go out and spend it. Consumers will go and spend it. Businesses will go and invest or spend it on somewhere. But the funny thing is people don't behave that way, right? Instead of taking the cash to go consume or to buy goods and services, what do we end up doing? We end up using that cash to go and buy properties. We use the cash to go and do something like, because we wanna, because that's, that's, that's only this amount that we can, we can consume. If you're not consuming, you don't, you don't consume more just because you're, you're getting like 0% in interest in your bank. You consume, you, instead you take that money and you go and speculate in some, Thing like Bitcoin or in real estate or, or stocks or shares because how else do you make money, right? Because in the past, in our parents' generation, you leave your cash in a bank, you'll be, yeah, you are, you will be paid 5-6% per annum, right? So these are all the different moving parts of an economy and the fiat monetary system that, uh, that, that sort of, um, they're sort of pushing um, the adoption of Bitcoin forward. So I think uh, you, it's interesting you mentioned about that last time it used to be like 5 to 6% interest rate. I think a lot of people don't realize that it used to be like that in the past. Mm. You know, um, Basically for the last 30 or 40 years, there's a one-way downward trend. Interest rate is going down all the way, even going to negative. So um, at some point of time, at some point of time, I don't know when, wait, um, at some point of time, I don't know when it should go back up again. and go back up, it will be like the mother of all moves, you know. Because something is broken when you have negative interest when you put your money in a bank and like the mm -hmm. and you're losing money when you put your money in a bank. Um and, and as I mentioned just now, I think there are many ways you can try to hedge that away. Um Bitcoin is one of them, real estate is one of them. But then again if if you're not a sophisticated investor, what chance do you stand in like um real estate or artwork and things like that? So Bitcoin is one of the ways that you can really hedge out that you can hedge out that risk. Okay, so let's continue talking about the value of Bitcoin. I mean, I've seen, okay, I don't really know, I don't have a target price of Bitcoin, I don't know where it will go to, but I buy it because I like it, I like the censorship resistance property of it. Uh, it. To me, it's really very cool, like, I can send a Bitcoin to somewhere else easily, uh, on my wallet, on my, on my laptop. I've seen a few models, like stock to flow ratio and all that, so could you mm. explain more of that, like, what does it mean, uh, like, happening, the things like that, like, 
how does it equate or how does it translate to prices or what mm. does the model say? Mm. Uh, I think there are uh, you know a lot of proponents and a lot of critics of these models, right? Yep. Whether it's stock to flow or some some of these other models. Uh, I think if we took a step back and look at it simplistically, we realize that every four years we have a halving. So inflation halves every single four years. Um, and it almost acts as if it's a supply crunch, right? You have a supply crunch. Um, miners are suddenly not able to sell as much as they used to. And because of that sudden shock in, um, in that selling, and if you know for the same dollar demand right for the same 10 million dollars demand in a day and supply is suddenly halved you would naturally expect the price to go up because um, the supply curve is inelastic like you have it's literally one straight line right? one, one vertical line so because the, 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 the supply curve can, cannot shift um, prices should go up naturally over time um, and, and whether it's by coincidence or whether it's by design um, you know Satoshi himself um, I think his intention was really to have this as a sort of a adoption driver every four years you have these sparks you know it's almost like lighting a fuse um, under a rocket right and you know you know depending on which models you look at depending on history historical you know prices historical price movements um, I think the halving will obviously be another big event um, inflation will be cut from I think three three point six three point seven to about one point eight percent one point yeah one point eight percent, which is quite a big change, um, and I think that will obviously lead to um, much higher prices. We don't know what prices that will Definitely be, but you know pretty sure uh, I'm pretty sure we'll see a new all time high again. Mm. Uh, so it's more of a question of when, uh, not not if. Uh. What other models are they used to model? Um, I think the, <coughs> the the main one that people are obviously looking at right now is, is the stock to flow. Stock to flow. Uh, there are a few others, but not so popular, especially in recent months. Also, probably because stock stock to flow gives the highest price target of, of all the other models, right? So the companies are oh, you know, let's let's use a stock to flow model. Uh, but other models have been quite interesting, such as the one that is we you have price regressed against um, daily active addresses. So that's something more fundamental. Um, but with the advent of lightning and, and you know side chains and you know things like liquid and more and more people having their Bitcoin in exchanges, that may not be as reliable. So I think that's just one caveat. Uh, there honestly aren't that many models out there. I think there are other models that try to look at the terminal value of Bitcoin. So assuming if X percent of something you know of of this market, let let's say the offshore banking market comes into Bitcoin, what would that be? So I think it's more of a backward. Um, you know, you're trying to figure out what the price is based on a certain adoption. Something so like the gold price. Uh, mm, yeah, percent of gold price. Yeah, something like that. Um and okay, so we mentioned just now that uh, Bitcoin becoming a global store value, but how do you see like people using Bitcoin as a form of payment? Because mm. I myself, I wouldn't use it as a form of payment, in the sense that it's too slow and it probably takes too long to. Um, you know, mm. get a transaction verified. I, I think you don't want to be the pizza guy again. Yeah, and that, that may be one of the reasons also. Mm, mm, so, mm. you know, how does it fit in the model of a mm. global payment system? I think, um, I think Bitcoin becoming a means of payment is at least 10, 20 years away. I, I don't think most people who are spending Bitcoin today are conscious of, they are conscious of the fact that they are probably spending it at a price that's too low, right? And but you know, a lot of them do still talk about or oh, spend and replace, right? Spend and replace your your Bitcoin that you have spent away. But the fact of the matter is that ninety nine percent of people who hold Bitcoin don't use it as a means of payment, mm -hmm. and they don't want to because people are you know effectively betting on price prices going up, right? They're betting that adoption will rise and therefore price will rise. Um, and, and it is it is what it is, right? So. Um, I think over the next 10-20 years as the market continues to mature and the price continues to go higher because of adoption we will probably reach a more stable equilibrium um, mm -hmm. sometime down the line we don't know where the equilibrium, equilibrium will be but it will never be stable it will never be fully fully stable mm. if you look at gold today gold as a commodity it, it's never really been stable pretty much you know in the last 10 years if you look at the last 10 years mm. 
uh, it went from like uh, I think it peaked at thousand nine in 2011 mm-hmm. right and then it came all the way down to I think a thousand thereabouts so you know that's still 50% fall right but do people say gold is volatile no, not really right people do treat gold as a pretty good store value and people do believe in gold right um, some people don't believe in gold but even they can't dispute that gold is a store value mm-hmm. right even though they come out with stuff like oh gold has no cash flows gold has you know but that's fine, right? It doesn't matter because gold still has value and, mm-hmm. and they can't dis- dispute that. But even then, gold is volatile, right? It's fallen from 1,009 to 1,000 in the past and now it's 1,500, So it has been volatile over, over the years and gold has been around for what, 5,000 years? You know? Yeah. So, you know, if you compare gold to Bitcoin, Bitcoin is only 10 years old today. Will it become more stable in the next 10 years? Yes, but will it be completely stable no you still continue to be much higher you continue to look sick for uh, what the market thinks is the correct price mm-hmm. but it will still swing you know 250k you drop to like 100k mm-hmm. then it go back up to 250 you know you, you'll still do things like that okay so why do you think bitcoin will eventually take over gold as like a store of value uh i think um i think bitcoin at least in the next 10 20 years will not replace gold just yet, mm. right? I think gold obviously has properties that Bitcoin cannot completely replace. Mm-hmm. I think the biggest among that is the tangibility, right? Mm. I think there will always be a subset of the population who will prefer tangible, the, the tangible property, the tangible nature of gold. Mm. Uh, and I don't see it happening that, you know, Bitcoin consumes gold entirely and gold becomes just a intrinsic sort of a, uh, commodity, right? Mm. Even today, you still have people who you know who are you know very very ancient in their thinking. So there's always a subset of population who is very di- for who, who is very different. Mm. So gold will never disappear, right? Mm. It's more from the fact that Bitcoin has new properties that gold doesn't have, and that will also serve a new set of um a new set of um population who may need. Bitcoin for a certain properties such as its ability to cross the border um, with just the seed words in our head mm-hmm. and you can move a billion dollars, right? But you can't do that with gold because in you know recent some of these regimes you see them having the border guards at the border mm-hmm. and they'll confiscate gold, like they will they will search their body, they will pluck out your gold teeth, you know. So you can't even transport gold that way. But um, more importantly Putting those aside, I think the monetary policy of these two assets are also interesting in a sense that gold has an annual supply inflation of, of about 1.6-1.7% per annum. Whereas Bitcoin is has been you know designed in its protocol to you know there is a cap, right? Unlike gold where you could mm. continuously mine it for the next thousand years even, right? Mm. Bitcoin is capped at 21 million and in four years, so the next six halving in five years. The inflation will be cut from one point eight percent to zero point nine percent, which then means that it becomes even less inflationary than gold itself, mm-hmm. right? In a way, if you think about it, it is a supercharged version of gold. Gold one day will be gold one day will have an even lower inflation as well because as inflation right uh, as more and more people mine gold, the stock of the gold in in the world would grow, right? If you imagine if the flow was constant and the stock was double today. The inflation rate of gold or the stock to flow of gold would actually change, right? You'll, you'll be halved, right? So the inflation would drop from 1.8 to 0.9 as well. So, in a way, you can think about Bitcoin as being a supercharged gold, as gold as digital gold as, um, that's having a stock to flow increase even faster than gold. Because gold had to go through a very long, natural, thousand year process where people just keep mining and mining and mining, that, and the stock will continue, continuously grow. So, what does this imply? It implies that Bitcoin will become an even um, better store of value than gold because it will be even harder for the miners, whether it's Bitcoin miners or gold miners, to inflate the supply. Right, the inflation of Bitcoin will become harder to change. Uh, sorry, not harder to change. Will become even more. I think the right word here will be monetary hardness. So, Bitcoin is actually more hard than gold. It will be harder for a producer to inflate the supply. So, what does it imply? Um, I would say that Bitcoin is becoming a superior store of value to gold simply because its inflation will continuously fall over time and you can predict that with a higher certainty than gold. So gold, you roughly know that it is 1.8% per annum 
But who knows, right? Um, if 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 ten years from now, if they could suddenly mine asteroids, you know, for mm. gold, then that you know that, that 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 whole thing could go out out of whack, right? Whereas Bitcoin, it is, you know, code is law, right? And you know for sure that in next year, the year after, what what would the inflation rate be? And finally, what's interesting is that anyone who runs a Bitcoin node is able to validate whether these Bitcoins are real, right? Whether the supply is twenty one million. Whereas for anyone who is in a goal world, there is no real way of validating whether your goal is real unless you get a machine or you know, like an assay machine. And there's no real way to sort of know what the total supply of gold in the world is. Right? So th- these are also things that I think make Bitcoin a lot more interesting than gold. Uh, can we talk about more about the demand for Bitcoin? So uh, is it true that you look at the OTC desk now? So where do you see like demand coming from or which country in general, like the region in general, like which country are more keen, like Hong Kong maybe, or things like that? I'll say not so, much, not so much Hong Kong now, I'll say the vast majority of Bitcoin is actually quite well distributed. It's actually a bit of US, a bit of China, a bit of Europe, you know, obviously you have people in Japan as well. So I would think that there's no, you know, there's no particular country that I can point to and say that, oh, these guys are like super big into Bitcoin because everyone is doing a lot of Bitcoin, right? It's pretty well distributed in a way. And it's also hard to track because the volume of Bitcoin is spread out across so many different exchanges and so many different OTC tests and of course peer-to-peer as well. So it's very, it's quite difficult to get a sense of, you know, who's the, where the geographical source of the demand and supply is coming from. Do you have like a understanding of the sentiment of why are they mm. buying Bitcoin mainly for I don't know, hedging reason mm. or yeah? I'll, I'll, I'll say 95% of people who buy Bitcoin is because they want to go to the moon. So only 5% of the people who will buy Bitcoin truly, I would say, appreciate it for what it is. So these are, I would say, your Bitcoin maximalists, um, people who are already early investors in Bitcoin and they don't want to cash out. So these are like your OGs, they truly believe in Bitcoin. But I would say, even 95, I would say that even some, a lot of these um, OGs, right, they will still sell at a, at a certain price. Just that they don't want to sell here. La. They don't want to sell um, before prices get to, the, get to a new all-time high. So I'll say that the vast majority, 95%, do eventually want to sell. Or they are eventually trying to make more dollars out of it. Mm. I'll say only 5% in, 5% of the Bitcoins held by the people in this space are truly, truly zero or 100 million. You know, holder of last holder resort. Of last resort. I, a lot of people claim to be you know, holders of last resort. They probably are not. I'm uh, pretty sure that if, if a, a lot of these OGs, if, if Bitcoin ever sinks to a thousand, they'll be like, shit, I need to get out, right? And they probably wouldn't buy more. So there, there are people like that. So there are, there are people who are holders of last resorts, but I would say the vast majority of them are not. Even the Bitcoin whales who hold a thousand BTC, I'm pretty sure that when Bitcoin gets to 100k or 200k, they'll, they'll be selling some. Um, yeah. So let's talk about like uh, Ethereum and something else because uh, cryptocurrency and blockchain is not only about cryptocurrency users, smart contracts, um, you know, uh, DAO, things like that. So what are your views on like Ethereum and the promises that it brings, you know, smart contract? Um, is it, because as compared to Bitcoin, it's not more like a store of value, it's not, it's not going to war against our monetary policy or things like that. It's more about smart contract, coming up with DAO, new mm-hmm. way to run things. Yeah, what are your views on Ethereum or even ICOs in general? Um, I think Ethereum is interesting in the functionalities it has provided um, and obviously the explosion of um, these, these decentralized finance protocols in the last 12 months have been, I, I, I think, they, you can imagine you know, that it, has, it, can possi- it can possibly become the bedrock of an alternative financial system where you don't need a central bank to issue mm-hmm. something that's stable you can operate, you can basically have protocols replace a bank, right? Now you have protocols that are able to have, you know, borrowing and lending automatically uh, by smart contracts. And I think, I think what's interesting is that as more and more people find out about decentralized finance, I, it's, it's almost like a black hole, right? Because people who have been through that process, they understand stable coins, they understand how borrowing and lending work. And I think that serves the emerging countries very well. Um, if 
you know, eventually these markets do end up getting educated about all these protocols because the financial system doesn't really serve the emerging markets very well right. like, like, like a typical you know, um, a Philippines um, family middle class they'll probably have a hard time trying to get a loan from a bank or someone from, a, from let, let's say Indonesia you know, rural village you know, they probably don't have a bank account right but for the first time, these you know, people, they have access to what I would say are very similar banking facilities. But this time around, they have a stable, stable asset, stable coin that's completely, that you, know, you, you don't need to go to the bank and you don't need to fill in the forms. You can just simply create an Ethereum wallet on, your, on their smartphone and they can borrow from someone. Okay. And you know, these, these are, I think, quite incredible things that I think people in the Bitcoin community feel to appreciate. Yeah, I, I totally agree because like recently I was just looking at MakerDAO and DAI and all that and uh, it was pretty amazing, it's pretty tremendous. Like you could just borrow DAI from like a you know, kind of decentralized source and you have like a group of people, not really a central party, um, determining the interest rate, the stability fee and all that. And yeah, it's like for the first time you can get like stable coins USD from the internet. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't agree with some <coughs> of the things they are doing, but I guess it's really a first step forward and it's kind of a good, like important first step towards more of a DeFi movement that we can gain access to USD and other stable coins through the blockchain itself. Yeah, I think the I think it's hard to appreciate what all this innovation really means until that person has been you know turned down by the, a bank before for a loan, right? I I I think if you go back to like you know pre pre Ethereum days. It's micro financing and micro lending has always been a big thing, right? People want to you know, go to Indonesia and provide micro financing, and, and uh, I would say the success has always, has always been like you know low to moderate. I think the penetration isn't quite there, but with with, with DeFi, you know you can scale it up, scale this up tremendously, right? And once I think once someone like them, they get used to the idea that they can now borrow money over the internet, um, and it doesn't even need credit checks. It doesn't need someone in a room to say, like, to do approvals. I think that opens up true banking to the 2 billion people in the world who like financial services. And with financial services, I think people also underestimate what financial services really mean, right? Because it actually allows for the creation of businesses, right? Like, all these small businesses are not possible without, you know, people lending you money. If... Like what would a typical you know family in an emerging market do right now? They would have to go and borrow from money, family and friends. Uh, but you know, with with a decentralized finance, they would be able to get a much larger loan. They can go and operate a small business. They can actually make money, and that in itself is actually has a much greater impact to the world economy than say you know some of the other things that you're talking about. Um, in in like let 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 let's say in all the very marginal improvements in the banking system that we see to to today because there's this entire chunk of the world population that's underserved. Um, and I think and I and I suspect DeFi will play a very big role in um, getting them on board. I think that's in the emerging markets part. I think what's also interesting is that the the, the gaming community um, that has been you know you know uh, that's that's been gathering around the Ethereum ecosystem is also quite interesting. Because let's say if if games games has has always been a very big thing among the young generation, right? Among the generation Z. And now for the first time, you are, you actually allow a six year old kid or a ten year old kid to you know create an Ethereum wallet, play a game, and actually earn real money, right? In the past, yes, it was possible as well. Like you could spin up World of Warcraft or some some of these RuneScape, some of these old games, right? You could mine for gold and then you can sell it for cash. But even then, you know, how would they then receive the cash? They would need a PayPal account, you know, they, they would need all these different things. And obviously these guys take, take very big fees. But the the access to the access to you know having money um, through games was always a two-step process. You have to go through a marketplace. And even for a lot of the games, stuff that you earn inside the game may not be directly translatable translatable to real money, right? Uh, some, you know. Most do, but then there's no proper platform to do it. So some people get scared as well. So, but that's a different story, lah. But when you have crypto native games where assets can now be freely traded, 
such as you know, CryptoKitties is not a super good example. So there's like you know, Gods Unchained. There's like all these different NFTs, non fungible tokens. Mm. For for I think for the first time, you know, you you can you can expect that the next generation of gamers will look at you know early gaming as a form of uh, income, right? Like a twelve year old kid after going home from school can go home and grind fifty bucks, you know, and then you know and and I think that's also in a way banking the unbanked because these kids usually would not have a bank account mm. even if they had a bank account they wouldn't have much money in it right? even if they have a bank account their parents might not allow them to go and do funky stuff with it like go and sell this shit for this shit right? but now all these can happen without their parents interfering and I think that's also in a way financial liberali- liberalisation for an enterprising six year old kid who has a business idea in the game economy and he wants to do something and now he can build something of value without going through the hoops that um, the traditional system has built in, right? And I think that will lead to an explosion of uh, innovation and all these different things. Yeah, I agree because, uh, I mean, I think gaming on blockchain is something that's really un- underappreciated. Uh, I still remember that, you know, MapleStory was like, you can't get cash or something, or they'll ban your account, things like that. But now if you have a decentralized wallet, um, I mean, some smart people are saying that you know, you can trade assets because these assets you own these assets yourself. You can trade these assets uh, uh, between different players, crypto kitties, things like that. Um, or even even like um, let's say an analogy would be that like um, the game developers can use back the same skins for different games from mm-hmm. this game A and game B. Some other people use it, and therefore the it creates like a protocol or ecosystem around that skin, and then the value will go up. So I think gaming on blockchain is something that is really underappreciated. I don't know where it will go. Um, there's scaling issues because you can't put everything on blockchain. I think certain skins can be on blockchain. So I think a good energy can be like maybe your CS skins can be used in like Dota, um, something like that. Um, we still don't know how the thing will work out. But moving forward, because gaming is actually very lucrative, like you know, World of Warcraft, friends like you know earning nice money from playing World of Warcraft is, is crazy mm-hmm. and but then you can't expect a 14 year old kid to count like use PayPal or bank account and things like that so I mean it's an opportunity and we'll, we'll see where it will go yep. okay and then one, way, one thing interesting is like if you want to know like what happens to a fiat currency economy just look at what happened to your maple story mesos <laughs> yeah, like one workload was like I think one mil back then now it's like 10 mil plus just simply because of mass mutations so uh, that's a good case study yes, for you all yeah, because the supply of mesos was never kept right yes. as, as people continue to level up you know mesos get easier to find mm. it would actually de- devalue yes, yes. In, in a way I guess it's also like inflation in real life mm. right? yes, yes. Bank printing. I mean, you can always buy mesos from the 7-Eleven and all that mm. yeah. actually most people sell it OTC right yeah, OTC yeah maybe, maybe we should sell Mesos also yeah. actually those people that sold Mesos were like the smart people yep. actually I've done that back then my friend was buying Mesos like oh, no. a bad investment buying <laughs> 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 fiat yeah, that's yeah. like worse than fiat yeah worse than fiat <laughs> okay so let's since we are going to like inflationary stuff so let's talk like, like some people feel that okay, yes, I was talking to some accredited investors so they were saying like uh, I was explaining to them like the pro- proposition of like Bitcoin, like mm. how it's deflationary, everything. Then they were arguing, their counter argument was like, why, like, oh shit, I forget, I lost it. Fuck. <clears throat> you, you know what you do? You should gather them, put them in a room, and then you bring all the Bitcoin pe- people out to explain to them. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's not, and, and I found that in, in my interactions that it's uh, with a lot of these. Um, especially slightly older people mm. they may have preconceived notions about what the world should be like right? oh, because oh. they have grown up in a certain mm. environment yes, yes. so it, it's typically a longer process in mm. terms of trying to convince them mm. why Bitcoin makes sense okay, to them Bitcoin is like a risk because they are generally quite comfortable and they believe that the US dollar will never fail so like can you have some give us some of your thoughts about that US dollar will never fail mm. uh they understand fiat currency will eventually mm. fail because mm. I was playing like using Zimbabwe as an example yeah. but they feel that because US dollar everybody is using it it will never fall I, I, I think one good chart to show them would be this particular chart um, it shows the reserve currency which were the reserve currency in the last 500 years mm. right the US dollar is actually a more recent reserve currency if you go back to history from the 1500s 
Before the US dollar was the reserve currency, the one before that was actually the Great British Pound. Mm-hmm. Before that, I can't remember which ones, but there was also a period of time when the uh, Spanish, I think, I think Spanish Portuguese, as well. yeah, Portuguese yeah, ones. Yeah. So it, it changes over time. Mm-hmm. There is no one currency that will take the crown and then stay there forever. In fact, the only thing constant over that period of time was that gold was the primary store value. Mm-hmm. Gold has continued to be a store value. But the reserve currency that's issued by a government has a cycle to it. So, you know, the biggest empire at that point of time will become the reserve currency and then it'll switch over as the empire sort of shrinks. Which is why the Great British Pound also gave way to the US dollar because um, the British Empire, you know, after, I guess after the World War One, World War II, uh, slowly gave way to the US dollar. So, US dollar is the king right now, but I am pretty sure that in our lifetime we will see a switch. Lah. Whether that switch is to digital UN, you know, digital mm-hmm. CNY, or maybe Bitcoin, we don't know yet. Speaking of digital, I don't think about like, all these government trying to launch a digital currency. I don't understand what are they trying to do. I think at least from China's perspective, they're trying to use it to extend political power. Okay. So if, you know, um, if they were able to, let's say, for the whole African continent to abandon their local government currency and to keep their wealth in digital yuan instead, they would effectively become the central bank for Africa as well. So in a way, they're extending their political power by allowing, by, by building the infrastructure such that, you know, through things like WeChat and Alipay, if more and more countries and people outside of China were to you start using the digital yuan, you'll become a de facto reserve currency of the world. So it's, it's more a political play than, than anything, and being able to control the monetary policy and the fate of People but I mean the part of digital I mean it has nothing to do with blockchain right it's more of just like a I say centralized distributed ledger tech centralized or is it now, like is, is it centralized actually I don't think we know the true architecture behind it but it would definitely allow the Chinese government to peer into transactions a lot more effectively because if you think about it today the Infrastructure isn't quite there for China to do it without blockchain, mm. right? They they could obviously run their own servers in house, uh, but they would they would not be able to control what happens in WeChat, like WeChat will run their own servers and all that. So they will have to rely on all these intermediaries to spread their network. But by doing it all in house, uh, and you know, so WeChat and all these will basically become I would say nodes lah. Mm they will then be able to see through all the different transactions that has happened mm. uh, and, and it will basically it's, it's basically a much more efficient infrastructure that's the way I see do you, do you think countries will adopt this currency? Uh, I think I think the some of the countries obviously will be will align themselves with China and they will definitely use um, China's version of uh, the, the, the digital yuan Obviously, it's a very you know, sensitive topic, uh, but I think there will be some. There, there will be some, and um, but that will lead to a slip, you know, quite a slippery slope in terms of what it means for their own sovereignty, right? Well, what their country, what their central bank will do, what their Correct. own government will do, what their citizens think. I think for a country like Singapore, we wouldn't. It's probably not such a not so, not so much of an impact. Because we do trust the Singapore dollar, Correct. but if you were, let's say, someone who lives in you know Ghana or something like that, you'd be like, oh, maybe I want to hold more of my money in digital yuan instead, right? It's not so much because they want to travel and spend there, but it's more of a store value. But for people like us, we may still decide to hold some digital yuan because we go there for holidays or whatever, right? So I think there will be adoption. It's more of a matter of how much and maybe how. US will also respond to China doing this. What okay, like what other aspects of like blockchain are you like interested or bullish on? Like we may talk about stable coins, gaming, mm. uh, smart contract. Like for me recently I kind of heard of a company like um they are trying to I mean they're storing information on blockchain on the Ethereum blockchain. Mm. So it's like the business model works by um, then going to a government agency and then like this government agency they have grants and they you know, post it online but rather they post it on their website or anything they host it on like 
your Ethereum blockchain. So uh, the government agency pay the company to use their API. Yeah, so as I was saying, um, the government agency will pay the company to use their API to put it on the blockchain. So like me and you, if you want to see like what grants they give out, we go to the Ethereum blockchain and just mm. um, see okay the information is there. And I guess the benefits of that is that it's um, you know um, censorship resistance. You can't really change the data unless you spend a billions of dollars mm. changing it. Um, yeah, so from a from perspective of what you're seeing, what other aspects of blockchain can be are we bullish? Mm. That, that doesn't sound like a very interesting use case to me. For I think number one, right? I think we go back to first principles. What is a blockchain? Why would someone need a blockchain? A blockchain is most necessary when you need trust between participants, right? Mm. You need trust between participants, and you and these participants may not necessarily trust each other, right? If your blockchain is between parties that already have mutual trust. There's actually no real need, no real need to use a blockchain, right? Like if for a for something that's done within Singapore, because Singapore's government itself is a highly trustable, reputable organization institution, there's actually no real need to run a blockchain, right? If if they had stopped the data in, in, in a centralized AWS and they run it themselves. Why would storing it on the Ethereum blockchain be any you know, incrementally much much better than doing it themselves? Because yeah. they themselves, I mean, the, the, the government itself is a very known entity and a very reputable one. The ones where blockchains add most value is when the participants don't trust each other, right? It's things like, oh, let's say Singapore government and another government elsewhere in the world where they may not have the best reputation, and maybe there are 10 governments involved and they don't trust each other as much. Right, so that is where blockchains can add real value because you know that no one in the in that in, in that group can change any of the data. But if it's an internal use, you know, within the lens of Singapore, it's really not that much of uh, incremental benefit you think about it. So I think it's I think people are struggling to find use cases because to to be honest, there aren't that many use cases that require um, sort of this this level of trust. Which is why we are still at a stage where we are still. I mean, there could be a lot of use cases out okay, there. We don't know yet. But as so of today, I think the main ones we see are gaming, so the ownership of digital assets. Um, DeFi, right? DeFi, 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 DeFi is because DeFi. you need to know whether that's, that 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 stable coin really is there, right? And you need that fun, that that functionality. But then you go back and realize, that, hey, actually, Bitcoin still makes the most sense because money is a very big market. Mm. So. Which is why I think we are at a stage where there are a lot of use cases out there. Like people are trying to build a decentralized Uber, right? A decentralized mm. Uber could be interesting. Mm. But to build a decentralized Uber, you need to have a few different building blocks. Mm. You, need to, you, need, you first need to have a decentralized global identity for everyone, where then, where, where then you will have things like reputation, things like all these social credit scores and stuff like that. So these things are not built yet. And I think we are actually. We actually think that some of these building blocks are worth building, such as these identity systems. Uh, yeah, so these are the things. Mm. Well, in case, okay, so the very interesting question I want to ask you is uh, do you think the recession is coming and how do you think people are performing in the recession? Uh, okay, I think, um, okay, so you know the, the typical joke, right? Mm. The economies caught for like 13 of the last seven recessions or something like that. Mm. Uh, it's obviously hard to this hard to predict any recession. But if you look at typical cycles, like economic cycles, they usually play out anywhere between seven to ten years. So I, I think we are quite overdue for the next one, right? Uh, for the most part. I think the last one people can point to, which was a pretty small one, was the 2015 one. Uh, uh, you know, the whole European situation. And before that it was probably 2009. And if you go backwards in time, it was probably 2003, uh, that was SARS. And in 2000, that was a tech bubble. And before that, you know, 997, Asian crisis. So you, you basically have always a couple of years before something happens, right? And we haven't had something for quite some time. I think the, the major fear is that, um, that, you know, it could happen 2020, 2021. Uh, we don't know, but I think the, the flattening of the yield curve Obviously, offers some clues, right? 
typically we have you know once the yield curve starts to flatten you know up until 12 to 18 months before a full recession hits uh, but I suspect this even the next recession will not be as severe as what people think because central banks will continue to cut rates that will obviously you know you have the V-shaped recovery all over again in the markets and I think people are still very used to the fact that as central banks will come in and save the day I think that mentality hasn't changed so I, I, I will suspect the next recession will be more of a garden variety one rather than a, you know, like a 2009 offer again. Mm. Hey, so How will Bitcoin... So a recession yeah. will hit but it won't be like very serious. I feel like you personally went through, I mean you personally went through yeah. a few recessions right? Like for us we didn't went through a recession. I think 2015 was a very small one. Mm. Uh, 2009, I was still in school back then. But luckily, by the time I graduated, we were, we were more or less part of the roots. Right? In 2012, things were already looking rosy. Mm-hmm. I think recessions... Recessions... Uh, it, it's obviously an important topic because recessions obviously impact you know, the markets uh, and the job market. Right? Things like job market, things like the willingness of employers to hire. So these things do affect uh, stuff like that. So I, I'm not... It's something that's impossible to time, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Like you could wait, you know, I, I you know back back in those days, you know, four or five years ago, I know of some guys who were like, oh, they were they were thinking that recession is coming. So they sold their house and started to rent. And the prices kept going up. So they thought that the prices were fall because the recession is coming. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, in the end they 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 capitulated and then they went to buy that. You know, so it's impossible to time things like that and you know, a lot of it comes out of luck. So the other question about Bitcoin, how it perform, I don't think anyone knows. I think right now, Bitcoin is in a funky space. In a sense that it's both a risk asset and a risk uh, and, and a safe haven at, at the same time. I would say it's more 60-40, so 60% is probably a risk asset and 40% like a like, like, like gold. So I would suspect that in a severe market sell Bitcoin will also sell off. But I think it's price behavior would be more similar to gold in the sense that it will sell off first and then go back up. I think it also depends on what was the trigger for the recession. If it, if it was relating to something that Bitcoin benefits from, such as the loss of confidence in fiat money, loss of confidence in the central bank's ability to control interest rates, then I think Bitcoin will do well. If it's a recession because of more, more vanilla things, such as, oh, um, maybe say consumer spending is down and therefore uh, uh, businesses are less and then they cut jobs and then so you have the natural sort of um, natural um, cycle right, in the business cycle and it's not so much because people fear the central banks are losing control then I think they will do very bad in this scenario so I think it also depends on what is the trigger for that particular recession mm-hmm. um, okay so Aaron so um Going back to your conversation just now, you meant, uh, it seems like you're more of like a BTC maximalist kind of person. Yeah, kind of. So, I mean, okay, there are like thousands and thousands of crypto assets mm-hmm. on the market. So yeah. I'm not going to ask you like, what do you think will you know, hit the moon or whatever, but, but then let me share like, from my perspective, I only own like ETH and BTC because I kind of like, I mean, I don't really see the use for other coins, things like that. And so if you would like advise uh, maybe uh, some new guy like what mm-hmm. should he or she own or rather like what do you own yourself? Yeah. I think that's uh, a fair question. Fair question. Yeah. Fair, 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 fair question. I think for a you know a newbie who's completely new to crypto but wants to get some allocation in, I think the best split will be 80% Bitcoin, 20% Ethereum. I think the 80-20 split is a fair split. Uh, and with, without being, I guess, too stuck up about being a Bitcoin maximalist, right? I think there's some value for Ethereum out there. I think Bitcoin will probably win the store value market, but one cannot discount the fact that there is something real happening in the Ethereum e- ecosystem, and that you know, if if you are, if anyone has experienced the Ethereum ecosystem, and I think fine, like you can you can you can sort of there there are valid points by the Bitcoin community about Ethereum, such as it's you know, the fact that this monetary policy is quite unstable, you know, you have a bunch of developers who can sort of make decisions around Ethereum. Mm. But it doesn't discount the fact that there's something real being done in the Ethereum ecosystem. There are lots of smart people doing stuff there. So I would I would be I also hesitate to say just by Bitcoin only, 
uh, even though I think that's not a bad idea still, much better idea than buying shit coins, right? Mm. But still, if, if it, it would be a shame, like I would say make the decision of yourself, go and experience the Ethereum ecosystem and, and figure out whether you think this is something real. Mm. And I think there is something real there. So I think an 80-20 split is, 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 is probably uh, fair, right? Uh, and, but you know, to, to be honest, Bitcoin will, be, will continue to be Bitcoin. Uh, it will continue to be number one. Um, it, it, it is the reserve currency of the asset class and I doubt that anyone can take that crown away from Bitcoin at this point of time. Yeah, definitely agree because um, Bitcoin is more like a dark community in the sense that we don't know who Satoshi is. Like there's this perfect myth about the Bitcoin, you know, we don't know who the founder is. So it can kind of become a store value because if you don't know who the founder is, there's no one you can go to like to change the code or you know to make him like say something because if you look at Ethereum, uh, there's actually a lot of controversies around it. The DAO, the fork, the hard fork, Vitaly having too much power, a few developers um, mm. having like a lot of control over mm. like when to fork or what to uh, like, like the DAO episode was one of the more controversy one, you know. Um, but that being said, um, I think they serve two different purposes. Because it's more of as you mentioned, store value, monetary policy. Ethereum has uh, this idea of a DAO, like a decentralized organization where you can do many things. You can do a DAO, there's DeFi that is working now, it's working now. And there's also smart contract and things like that. So I think in terms of smart contract, it's the number one platform now as compared to many other platforms. And it's kind of decentralized and there's a lot of developers working on it moving forward. Mm-hmm. So I think it's fair to say that um, if you want allocation, if you want exposure to crypto assets, Bitcoin and Ethereum will be like two of the best choices. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Do you have any more questions? Um, so ever where can we find online or LinkedIn or? Um, you could, if on, on on Twitter, you know, it's Fiat Minimalist, <laughs> um, and on uh, LinkedIn, you can find me as well. Mm-hmm. Just type in my name. Um, our OTC desk. LamaBrothers.com, L-L-A-M-A, so pretty simple, the animal llama. Um, yeah, that's it. Alright, thank you. Thank you.